podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Guys, I'm Sai and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation, the home of our cricket series, The State of Play. This is episode number eight. The show is available in video format at youtube.com slash acepodcastnation, plus the audio version at uh, all of the usual podcast and radio platforms. Ace Podcast Nation, also your home for many other great shows and series featuring expert guests, top analysts and more on a variety of subjects from MMA, football, cricket, mental health and more. Uh, give us a follow on social media and subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can uh, also follow the, the Cricket Show if you want to streamline your experience. And it's at State of Play underscore, which is our new address for the show. Uh, joining me today is uh, not the usual trio. No Kieran Powell today. So it's, uh, first of all, ex-Glamorgan bowler, Mr. Nye Norman. How goes it, my friend? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks yourself. Oh, good, buddy. Two shows in a week. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. Stuff. I know. Busy, busy, busy. But uh, joining us, yet another top guest from the cricket world, another former England player, he's a former Glamorgan legend and uh, England batsman as well as England coach, uh, Mr Matthew Maynard. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks, Ty. Yeah, in uh, Cardiff in lockdown, but uh, not not quite as bad as the first time, so at least we can get out plenty. Uh, in, in the in the county, you know, so yeah, pretty good. Hope yourself as well. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not too bad. It's not as bad, like you say. It's not as bad as the first time round, where uh, it was a bit more intense. The lockdown, but uh, it's all right. It's not too bad. Um, okay, so we're going to talk a bit of bit of cricket, bit a bit about your career and and whatnot, and see where the conversation takes us. But uh, what we like to do first is the the magnificent seven, where we ask you seven. Quick fire questions, and you just give us your uh, the first answer which comes to mind. Um, so, okay, uh, Magnuson Seven for Matthew Maynard, uh, Ben Stokes, Andrew Flintoff, or Ian Botham. Ian Botham. Uh, toughest opponent. Shane Warne. Uh, Mark Wallace or Colin Metson. Mark Wallace. Greatest fast bowler of all time. Malcolm Marshall. Uh, Favourite ground to play at? Lords. Best roommate? Jeff Holmes. And uh, finally, laziest trainer? Careful. (laughs) (laughs) There's been a few over the years. That's a great question, actually. Uh, Because you can pitch up a training and do all the right things, but actually not pick anything up. So you lazy yeah. head, kind of, from learning. Um, but actually, someone who probably did very little around uh, training, 
Uh, I'd have to say a left-arm spinner called Mark Price back in the day. Price, who was a, a Lancastrian lad, F- funny, funny lad. So he, he used to tell us, you know, because he played, you know, a lot in the, at that time. It, when it came to practice, we didn't we didn't practice a huge amount. So I'd, I'd put Price in there, maybe. Fair enough. Not that's uh, good. You answered those really quickly, which is always good for the quick-fire questions. I like that. There was no hesitation. You were straight in there. Mark Wallace over Colin Metzen. Yeah, more than the character, really, side. Yeah, I am. Um... Metzen was a, a great glove man, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it was quite obvious when I took over the captaincy that I didn't really rate him as what he brought to the team. Um, okay. Adrian Shaw played ahead of him in 97. Um, yeah, so it was down to character, what he gave to the team or, or lack of in, in Metzen's case. Uh, yes. and, and, and Wally, you know, played two hundred what two hundred and twenty games consecutively first class, which is a an amazing feat. And a number of those games you would have played either with a dislocation or a break. A real tough character. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Mark Wallace because um, in my teenage years I was a keeper myself, and I think he was a year or two above me. You know, he was always playing for Wales and whatnot. You know, he was a top uh, top 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 player. Do you um? Do you think he ever came close to getting picked for England? I always thought he kind of been that far off because he got runs and he was a good keeper. Uh, yeah, I think he probably was because the runs he got weren't enough. Mm. You know, Gilchrist changed the whole whole way that teams and sides looked at that wicketkeeper batsman. Um, you know, back back there was always a. Taylor or not, wasn't he, you know, with England, but not he obviously could bat a lot, you know, better than Bob Taylor. And uh, it's always had these kind of, right, who's the best clubman? Because that means, and it's kind of since, since Gilchrist has just blown everything kind of out of the water because he raised the bar so, so much more. So we see now, obviously in the England setup, there's, you could pick from any one of four or five keepers who are also tremendous batsmen. And, you know, within that, there's obviously Billings at, at, at Kenny who doesn't really get a look in with the gloves at all. Obviously, Joss Butler, Johnny Bairstow. There's a young lad, Tom Banton, coming through, who's, a, who's obviously at a, a Somerset, who, you know, a fine keeper as well as being a, uh, you know, a fine batsman. And, uh, uh, of course, Ben Folks as well, you know, who's a wonderful player. So we're actually inundated with these guys who are averaging, you know, potentially or could average, you know, 40-plus in uh, in the Test match or White Ball Arena. And, um, you know, I think that's our own Chris Cook here at Glamorgan, you know. I mean, he's uh, he takes kind of bat into a different level in terms of especially White Ball stuff. Um, you know, he's won some incredible games for the club over the years and his keeping is very smart as well. So... I think, you know, I think that Gilchrist really did change the outlook of a lot of people uh, to, to that keeper batsman role. Yeah, 100%. I think, um, like, you look at Ben Folks, I would argue that he's probably the best keeper England have got. But Josh Butler, for his batting, uh, who can he can also keep very well, I think he kind of gets the nods. To, and understandably so, because, like I say all the time, but I think... Uh, Joss Butler's the closest thing that England have got to a, a Gilchrist who can change a game in an hour. Te- you know, in a Test match, you, if he stays in for an hour, he can take the game away from the opponents. And there's not that many uh, 
batsman who can do that uh, now, would you say, mate? That's yeah. what gives Joss the edge, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Matt, a good point there about Sam Billings. Obviously, he scored 180 in the one-day series this summer, and he, he doesn't get a one-day contract. Um, I mean, as a coach, and Matt will be able to help on this one, if you have two players in a, in a team, so say like Somerset back 2007-8, when they had Keyswetter and Butler, both in the England team, both keepers, how do you, did you give one one game, another another game? Because at that stage, it was England's view was Keyswet is just the batter, not the keeper. We want Joss to be. But then Somerset's was, no, we want Joss to be the keeper or whichever way around it was. I mean, how, how would you go about that? I'd certainly have done my utmost to get a compromise between the two because obviously what happened at Somerset was they, they can't look into the future, but Keyswetter obviously sustained that nasty eye injury and, um, you know, and retired afterwards. Uh, but Joss is a local lad. Um, with a huge amount of talent. And even if you said, right, you keep in the four-day games, you keep in the one-days and, and alternate in T20. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they did try and get a compromise, but, you know, I, I, I certainly know that Joss would have uh, sacrificed some some uh, games to keep to, to allow him to stay at Somerset at that stage, you know. As I say, it's his home club and you always want to play for your home, home club and do well, so... Um, yeah, look, yeah, I think they should have got to a, a compromise. They didn't, um, and, and Joss left. But no, to, it's a great question because only those in that conversation at the time would know what went on. And it was my predecessor at Somerset, Dave Nosworthy, who was uh, coach at the time, where they, you know, couldn't resolve that issue, and uh, uh, and it saw Joss leave. Yeah, and who, who for you is the best keeper in England at the moment? Do you reckon keeper, purely keeper? Again, you know, Fouts is, is, is touted as being the best. And we, we, we mustn't forget, he got 100 out in Schleicher. Yeah. You know, he can, you know, he, the lad can bat as well. And he's, he's done well for Surrey this year in the T20, so he's a three-format player as well. It's not just a one-dimensional. He comes in middle order and he's he steered them home a number of times this year. He, he doesn't have that incredible brilliance of Butler. Very few do. Um, but he is a dangerous player. And... You know, I I haven't seen a huge amount of folks keep wicket live. Um, I have seen you know brilliant catches of his through you know through social media, etc. Um, and but you listen to all all the commentators who would see him, all the pundits, you know, and they ask them the same question, and they say folks is the best best keeper. But you know. It, I talked about Matt and I don't know what folks is like as a character, what, what he's like within that England dress room. Is he supportive of the rest of the teammates? Is he quite individual? Um, and look, there's nothing wrong with that. But if, if you've got a, a side that needs more team-orientated people to get that critical mass and the team moving in a certain way, then you have to leave those individuals behind. And, and I'm not saying and folks is an individual at all. I, you know, I'm just potentially looking at reasons why he, he may not be in there. Um, he's always come across as a very, very likable individual, feet on the ground, uh, good professional, uh, gets the job done brilliantly. So, you know, he's never been quoted in the media saying this, that and the other, why am I not playing? You know, so he's obviously got some, you know, very good uh, uh, 
very good traits as far as that's concerned. But we'll just have to wait and see what happens, won't we? You know, with, yeah. with that. But folks have got to be certainly up there. Steve Davis is another one, I think. Yeah. Steve Davis is a wonderful company. Yeah, and like you mentioned, um, Banton as well is obviously he's doing very well in the one-day game as a batsman as well. But uh, you know, he's a good keeper. So it'll be interesting which direction England do go over the next couple of years because they've got four or five excellent keepers who can all bat very, very well. It's a good problem to have. Um, so Matt, when we uh, when we were speaking to Phil Freitas the other day, uh, Colin Metson came up. Um, because obviously as a keeper myself, when I was younger, as I mentioned, um, I, you know, Colin Metson being from Cardiff myself as well, a Morgan fan, um, he was kind of my, like, my hero when I was younger. Um, and I always felt like he was on the brink of the England team, but never quite got there because of his batting. Um, and then obviously you mentioned whereby you uh, selected Shaw over him. I was just wondering if you'd mind kind of expanding on that and maybe just giving us a bit of an insight into why you think maybe Colin Metzen never made that sort of jump up? Uh, look, a great gloveman, as I, I touched on there earlier, but, um, you know, a very individual, very kind of selfish player. And we were trying to move the side in a, a, a direction. So in 96, uh, we we had the base of the side. Obviously, at the end of that season, we released an all-rounder, Otis Gibson, and signed a front-line bowler in Marco Yunus. So we had to fill a gap uh, of an all-rounder, and Adrian Shaw scored a lot more runs than uh, Colin. Um, but Adrian's character was for the team, everything for the team, would play for the team, great trainer. Metson, quite quite often, he was a very selfish individual, um, which was a trait that you could, you could manage within the team because we had some strong characters in there. Um, but ultimately, it wasn't the way that we wanted to drive the, the team forward. And... Um, yeah, so, look, the way people are within a dress room is hugely important to me um, because ultimately you want, especially as a coach, you want to see dressing rooms almost tell police. Yeah. Um, look after themselves from a discipline point of view. Any any players messing up, players come in, you know, and will knock that player down. It's not all left to the coach. Um, and Chorzy would definitely do that, whereas Colin wouldn't. Colin would, would bitch more, and but actually wouldn't say anything. So it was, you know, a lot of it was down to that character and that person. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting insight. Um, you mentioned another player, which I'd like to touch on very quickly, because he was another one of uh, my kind of Glamorgan-based cricketing idols, and that was um, Otis Gibson. What sort of impact did he have when he came over and signed for the county? Because as a fan and a kid watching, I thought he was, you know, he's in just incredible character. Yeah, he was. And he was he was still fairly young when he played for us. So I think he, he learned more about his game after uh, his spell at Glamorgan. He obviously went on and did really well at Leicester and, and, and then finished his career incredibly at Durham. And... Um, uh, you know, he he was a great, great all-rounder for us. Um, but he he wasn't that FIFA-winning guy at, at that stage of his career. He became that. You know, he became that kind of man. Uh, but I just felt at the time, as did, you know, speaking to some of the players, that if we could secure someone like Wakar, he would make the difference. 
Yeah, he was, and 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 that's why it came to be that you know as soon as we'd signed or we were close to signing Wakar, it was a you know we sat down with Odis and explained the situation. Obviously, one overseas player only at that stage, but look, he was a terrific. He was a, a little patchy as an overseas player at that stage of his career. Mm. Uh, he missed the consistency. He missed that. He would win the odd matchers, but he didn't do it as consistent, you know, like maybe contribute massively in six championships, seven championship games out of out of 14. You know, he, he, he didn't contribute as often as I thought he should or what an overseas player should do at that stage. But as I said, he became, he went on to become a, you know, a terrific overseas player and, um, you know, he's coaching as, as he's done fantastically in, in that uh, aspect of, of the game as well and uh, that's because he's got a great cricket knowledge he obviously was a dangerous batsman as well uh, but he, he's the way he learned to bowl because he was I think he was he was sharp there was no doubt about it he wasn't express pace he was sharp uh, you know mid to late 80s but he learned to swing it then both ways afterwards and he I think when he was potentially with us he was going through that right can I get up to that 90-plus bowler? Hmm. And he, he probably couldn't. He was never going to quite get that extra yard to get up there. Yeah. But he developed his skill with the swing and his accuracy, you know, terrifically. Um, yeah, so, and a, you know, a, a wonderful fella accepted the situation, saw where we were because we were open and honest with him and, uh, you know, still, still remain friends. It's... Um... It's interesting, like obviously back then, like you mentioned, you only had the one overseas player. And I feel like there must have been quite a lot of pressure on those overseas players uh, to, to perform every single game because they're kind of brought in from the outside, if you like, for lack of a better term, to be that kind of almost star player. Um, and I guess if they don't contribute every game and they don't win you every, like the majority of games, then they'd be open to criticism, maybe. Um, do you think that's a fair kind of assumption, Knight, looking back with hindsight? Well, I think, as Matt said, it depends on the type of overseas player you get. If you get a young lad who's got serious ability and a county that's maybe at a you know, redevelopment stage that will win you half a dozen games, then OK. But as Matt said, they were going for the championship or they wanted to win the championship. Your overseas pro, like Wacker did, I imagine would have won eight to ten, maybe even more games of cricket for Glamorgan on his own. Uh, and that's, that, was, that, that was probably the difference, as Matt said, between Otis and Wacker, I'd imagine. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at that point, I'd imagine Wacker, you know, it's just the finished article, and it sounds like at that point in his career, Otis Gibson was kind of uh, the potential and the ability was there, but he was kind of putting it all together. Would you say that's fair, Matt? Yeah, definitely, Sian. Uh, look, I think Wacker... His contribution, just being on the pitch with us, that, that kind of what lifted, how he helped Darren Thomas, you know, learn new skills about playing the game. Just everything around, stuff like that. Um, it was it, it was brilliant. In that championship year, um, you know, we had a great start. We got a, a great start. But the, the kind of, after being bowled out for 31 against uh, Middlesex and losing by an innings, we went up to play Liverpool and it, T on day one, we were 200 for one wicket. 
uh, 199 for one. And it rained for a couple of days. Um, we agreed a 270 chase in 65, 70 over, something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers now. Wacker got 7 <laughs> for 15. <laughs> oh, it was, the ball was, because it had been raining, it was a warm day then, it was, it was just swinging all over the place. He got 10, you know, and, and won that game with Bowl Lancashire out for 50. Went down a, a Swansea, played Sussex, bowled him out for 60 and 70. Won, won that game. Uh, played Gloucester, bowled him out for 90 in the first inning. Uh, got some runs. They ended up winning that game. So we won three on the bounce. And Wakar won that one, obviously, at Lancashire, but contributed to the others. And... You know, Darren Thomas got a five or a six against Sussex. Watty was always picking up three or four wickets. So I think at the end of that year, we had four bowlers take 50 wickets. And I, think most, I think the most was 58. I might be wrong. But, it's incredible. you know, Wackard didn't like take, not like Mushtak when he was at Sussex, take 114 oh. wickets. And him and Rana would take 200 wickets between them in a season and they'd win. This was, you know, Wakar sum- supplemented our attack fantastically, but he also made our be- other bowlers better around him because of who he was. We played penultimate game of the season, a great game. It was against Essex at Carter, and it was kind of getting a bit, the wicket was turning, but it was, you know, they got a bit of a lead. And the best thing that happened was brought Wakar on for a kind of final push to try and keep them under 200, which would have been a really, really tough chase. Really tough chase on that wicket. And um, Ronnie Arani hit him second ball back over his head for four runs. And it was the best thing that ever happened to us that year because the next ball, Wacker ran in seemingly the same pegs, bowled the ball, which would have been about a yard and a half quicker, six miles to eight miles an hour quicker, not uprooted uh, Arani's middle stump. Uh, so it was the best thing that actually happened because it got Wakar back in that contest, you know. And um, yeah, and we ended up winning that game, thankfully, and before going on to Somerset. But so he, he had that in him. He had that ability just to kind of go up another level uh, when it was required. Yeah, he was. Um, I always remember him and uh, Wazi Makram bowling for Pakistan against England. Um, and there was that one summer, it probably was more than one summer, but like looking back at it in a kind of child's eyes, like there was that one summer where they just, it felt like they, every time they got the ball reverse swinging, they would kind of just rip through the England batting lineup, the two of them constantly every game. But um, yeah, they were very special bowlers. And I guess as a captain to have, um, or as a team even, just to have those kind of bowlers uh, and those players available to you. It's going to be there, the game changes uh, overall. Um, so, Matt, just before we kind of go right into your career, and, and I'm, I certainly want to talk about that season some more uh, where you won the championship for Glamorgan because uh, it hasn't happened since. So, uh, I'd like to discuss that uh, in detail as a Glamorgan fan. But uh, the, this week, Mark Cosgrove, it was announced, is leaving uh, Leicestershire at the end of his contract. Uh, he obviously. Uh, had a couple of seasons at Glamorgan um, and I was wondering if you just tell us a bit about Mark really because obviously he's very experienced campaigner who's coming towards the, the latter stages of his career um, and yeah leaving Leicestershire I'd like to think he'll go somewhere else maybe before he retires 
Yeah, I'm not sure. It depends what drive he's got and, you know, what, what he wants to do. I, look, he was... When I first came back to Glamorgan, so for, uh, came back as coach for 2008 season, and the time Cozzy, um, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure, you know, I wasn't, you know, because I obviously saw his shape and stuff, and he wasn't the athlete that you want a bit of drive from you, overseas players kind of thing. But wow, when I got to work with the guy and see what he was like around the, the players, around the dressing room. Well, I couldn't couldn't get enough of him, you know. And obviously, he couldn't make one of those years. I think mean, he got selected for Australia and played some one days, and Dizzy came in, and you know, they all he tried everything. Everyone tried everything to try and get him to, to to lose a bit of weight. But ultimately, I just loved what he did, you know, with, with, with a bat in his hand. And again, he won he won as matches. He helped our younger players just back their back their skill because he did that terrifically, you know, and. Uh, and the best way, you know, from from a coach's perspective, you can't. It's very tough to influence things on the school, of, uh, on the field of play, and you know, I've always felt that the players will learn more from their peers than they will from a coach, because they're out there at the time. So, batting with Ravi Shastri for me was terrific at the start of my career. Batting with Viv Richards at a later stage, wow, that was just some brilliant learning. You know, and with Hugh, obviously, and Steve James and, and, and the Glamoury lads were always kind of working to get better and help each other out there. But, you know, Coddy took it to a different level. He was terrific with all those young players he had. He just got them under his wing and just taught them how to, about batsmanship, really, uh, and the game in itself. And, you know, Ed can get too caught up with the game at times and, and, and take it too seriously. And he had that lovely attitude about him that what he was in practice, he would practice real hard uh, and, and, and with a clear vision and, uh, of what he was trying to do. Uh, and then he'd flip it then and be able to chill and relax outside of that. But around practice, he was full on, brilliant. And, uh, you know, when he went out to the middle, he just played with this apparent air of freedom and uh, belief in his ability. So he... He was terrific for, for the team. And obviously the reason why I, I left um, was because the chairman alongside uh, the chief exec and the um, uh, cricket advisory man uh, decided that Cody should go and we'll, we'll try and get Alvaro Peterson. Well, that meant we lost our captain in Jamie Dalrymple and our overseas player in Mark Cosgrove in, in one hit. And it was a crazy, crazy decision in my mind. And I think it proved so. I think Valvero only lasted a season at the club before he went. But then lost a good captain who was an England player as well in, in Jamie Dalrymple. And, uh, the, you know, the kind of, not the decline, if you like, but it certainly didn't help what what the club were trying to do, you know, at that time. And it, uh, it did put the, the club back a, a few years, I'm sure. So it sounds like, obviously, losing yourself and those two lads, that's a lot of experience and influence on the group as a whole, but also, you know, those young players, like you mentioned, uh, Mark Cosgrove used to help those guys yeah. a lot. That's a lot of experience and influence to lose all in one hit. It was, um, it was a, it was a brilliant mix, side because you had this, you know, Jamie Dalrymple, fairly kind of uh, army kind of base, yeah. disciplinarian, strict, good knowledge of the game, good skills as a 
you know, as a, obviously an all-rounder, played for England, you know, as a, a really highly skilled player. And then the kind of, you know, pragmatic cosy, you know, who just had all these skills and we just gave them right. So players like um, Gareth Reich, you know, really prospered. I think during those years that Mark Cosgrove was uh, with him, he averaged over 40 every season. As an opening back, it was a brilliant opening combo for the club. Set us up a really good way along the way, and you know Gareth was a, you know, a very kind of determined player. But again, he got a bit more freedom about his game because of the way Cosy was. So they were both huge influences, and to sacrifice that for someone that we didn't know, you know, was a, a really strange, really strange decision. And you know, hence I, I left the club. You know, if, this, if, if, if the, those three people had come to me and, and said, look, um, we want Graham Smith to come and open the baton and, and lead the team, what, what, what are your thoughts? Wow. You yeah, know, that's a different ball game yeah. then. Yeah, it's know? different. You're yeah, talking about a different, no. high, high class player, great leader, uh, even though it still wouldn't have been an easy decision because Dalrymple was a very good leader and Cosgrove was a great overseas player. So, it, but it would have, and if they said no, this is the way we're going. Actually, I I would have stayed at the club because, but for someone like Alvaro Peterson, who didn't have a great reputation when he was down at Somerset, you know, you do your due diligence on any player that you sign, especially overseas, because you want to make sure that they they can fit. So I, you know, when it was first, I mean, I. I, I, laugh, I remember laughing at the three of them when, when I was told to do it seems to be a joke that they sacrificed what these guys had brought to the club for someone that they had not obviously not done their due diligence on, not spoken to other counties, not spoken to Titans cricket out in South Africa and you know, and done the due diligence on this player who who was a talented cricketer, but he could also be a, a huge handful as well and very difficult to manage. Mm. And not yeah. a human player. Um, now you played obviously with um, with uh, Mark Cosgrove and, and Jamie. Uh, what what were your kind of memories of the both of them that that period? Obviously with Mark, Mark Cosgrove particularly as well. Uh, like Matt said, I played um, a couple of second team games. He played. He uh, came over just before the T twenties. I think he'd had a couple of uh, one day games with um, Australia. Came back, played second team game down in Somerset, and his like Matt said, his chillness. In the dressing room, he, he just spoke to us. He said, "Lads, there's no pressure in this. Go and express yourselves. You're all good cricketers, and just enjoy it." And I remember I was bowling to Peter Trago and Compton at the time, and they hit me for two or three fours in a, in a row. And he just put my arm, his arm around me. He said, "Well, what's the worst that can happen? It's not life or death. Just execute your skills, nail your plans, and, and it'll come off." So I, I said, "Okay, fine. I'm looking to bowl Yorkers. Next three balls, Yorkers. I think they got three. And he just said, there you are. That's all you need to do. If you do your game and control the controllables, whatever happens at the other end is, is kind of out of your control. Um, and JD, I have to say, like, I, I remember I, I came onto the staff, I uh, left Millfield. If I'm being brutally honest, I had it quite easy. You know, Millfield was an unbelievable school, but you, everything was given to you. And I thought, oh, I'll just walk into this. And JD, we did, um, we did a fielding session, if you remember, Matt, at the, the barn at the Vale. Yeah, yeah, and he pulled me to one side, and he just had a chat, and I, and it was like Matt said, very authoritarian, very like army disciplined, but it was never personal. It wasn't like a dig at you. It was just to get what your talent was, the best out of your body, 
or ability that would benefit Glamorgan and ever since then I thought actually he didn't have to do that he didn't have to pull me to one side and talk like that I, I and I, I respected him and then I remember we we had um, a get together we had um, a social Glamorgan day I think England played Australia at Swalek and you know we all you know one too many beers and whatnot but he made sure we we're in the next day we did 1800 meters running uh, boxing workout and I was paired with him and he just said listen if you want to go out and get pissed and do that that's fine but then come to training the next day and just ask for what was this expression moderation that was what he enjoyed the most moderation um but i like jd i've got a lot of time for him i think he's a, he's a top top guy um and like matt said it was a very um unusual time the next pre-season when we had as matt said not only those guys but we had a, a new director of cricket in um colin metzen um and alviro who was our captain, but he was all, you know, he tried to maybe go a bit more than, than captain, I would say. Um, tried to be more of a, a, I don't want to say coach, but like a mentor, which was interesting when he did a classroom day. That was a very interesting day. Something that mm. I, I wouldn't be too sure that Matt would have seen many days like that in, the, in his career. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. Um, okay. Uh, the other thing I wanted to get your opinion on, uh, Matt, just very quickly, was uh, we, we talked about it with uh, Phil De Freitas uh, the other day. Uh, we got the bowler's point of view from Nye and Phil, and uh, and we had the batsman's point of view from Kieran, and we had the kind of the the viewer's point of view from myself. Um, what's your view on uh, the man man kid? Uh, I don't want to call it a controversy, but it is what it is. Uh, an Ashwin particularly in the IPL uh, this week, basically giving a, a warning to everyone that he was going to keep doing it. What's your opinion as a batsman on it? And then if your opinion's different as a coach, I suppose, give your opinion on that. No, I, I, he's well, well within his right. If a bowler oversteps the mark, it's a no ball. If a batsman leaves his ground prior to the delivery, being... What I think, you know, I mean, they, they should amend the rule a little bit. So I know it's, the umpires have a lot on their plate, but if a batsman, so I'd, I'd, I'd change a couple of things in the game on the Lord. I'd say if a bowler pulls a no ball, it's 10 runs to the opposition, no extra delivery. Oof. No extra delivery. No free hit. No free hit. Right. 10 runs. Okay. Yeah, for overstepping the mark. Yeah. It's more like a long jumper. So you're doing a triple jump or a long jump into that pit. Your toe hits that plasticine, which in my mind is the front line. You don't get another go at it, yeah. So no jump. <laughs> it's a no jump. That's it. Right. Ten. You do that three times. You're out. You're gone. No, no jump. Well, just you could bolt. You could if you bolt three no balls. That's thirty runs. Game over. Yeah. Whatever format. It's game over. That'll change the whole game. So bring that in. And from a batsman's point of view, if you're outside of that, then it, it's uh, one one short every time. If you run, yeah, I think that's that, and, and you can be run out. Hmm. And so I, I have no issues with a, a man cad the way that Ashwin did it the other day. Warn the batsman who was probably half a out. Yeah, long a point of release. It's a long way out, wasn't it? I, no, the big thing for, for me in terms of 
stuff like that into you should be as a batsman first and foremost watching that ball go out of the bowler's hand and being ready to go ready to sprint you know, but what we have is a kind of old-fashioned oh, Alex. We've got to walk in with a bowler, and then you know, and some fielders do it. They walk in with a bowler, but actually, they walk in with no purpose. Mm. You know, the batter should be there what, with purpose. Right? When, when's it releasing it? Right? He's let it out of his hand. Now I'm looking to go, mm. and you have all that kind of you know. Now tough to do in a, a test match because you'd probably fry your brain out after three hours mm. doing that. But in a T Twenty game or a one day game, I don't see there are any any issues. But no, I thought it was what what I didn't like was that under nineteen World Cup when the young West Indian bowler was a man cad and that was it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I had he had he warned at that stage, I think different if he'd warned that. That player, and then the next ball, he he leaves his ground, and he's in every right. And I think everyone around the world would agree. Well, that, it was a non-striker's fault. He had a warning, but to do it without warning, last ball to win the World Cup was yeah, yes. And I know you know a lot of the West Indian senior West Indies players were very unhappy with that. Mm. I um, so that was going to be my next question, being that if. It's you know it's a run out. It's 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 within the rules of the game. Why should the bowler like just if looking at it from a cold sort of hard factual kind of point of view rather than you know the spirit of the game and the game that we all love and we've all grown up playing and stuff like that. Like really, like why should the bowler warn the batsman? Well, if he if he's out of his ground, no, no, it's fair point. Fair, fair, yeah. fair. No, no, it, it, it's a fair point. I just think. You know, there are certain aspects of the game. Where we look, they've gone, haven't they? A lot of walk. You know, you don't see too many players nicking and walking these days, do you? you know, no. They, they all kind of wait, and uh, while well, the umpires there to make a decision, yeah, yeah you know. So, um, yeah, look, it's I, because it's such a model, because it's just backing up, because it's not actually part of the game at that stage. I, I suppose that's why it's seen as a little bit slightly different, you know? Yeah, it's almost like it's still a dead ball, isn't it? It's The ball's not live, I suppose. Yeah, until, the, it, uh, until it's, you know, and it, and it, it's not relieved, you know, the bowler, at least now. I think they changed the rule, didn't they? That you could, the bowler now has to complete his action, doesn't he, before he can mm. do that. Or, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's, it's an interesting debate, and and look, if 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 a team came to our place and you know said to us, look, just warning you first and foremost here that we are not going to warn for any man cads, but we will be looking to do, then you have to warn your players and and make sure that you know they're they're the same. I mean, uh, trying to get your own players to do it would be a different, very different thing. And would I advocate that and try and get the players to do that? Then then no, because I don't think. But if someone's stealing consistently stealing then you've got to do something to stop them so yeah. is in now in your opinion if if someone does what Matt just said there and gives you the, gives the team a warning at the start of the game so it, in the changing rooms just pops ahead in and says look we're going to be looking to do that throughout this 20 over game is that a sufficient warning to then do it like if you've you know if they've given you a heads up before the game or would you feel that they should still give like a little warning before they do it in the game no i think if, if if a coach or captain's come in and said listen lads 
we, we, this is your warning, then it's okay. As Matt said, he's got to tell the team, right, lads, you need to stay on your ground. Watch the ball sprint as soon as he's released it. Um, that is technically a warning. So it's sufficient, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, today, lads. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting one, though, because if, if, say, I don't know, say Salts came to you, Matt, and said, right, I, I want to incorporate this into my game, would you actively discourage him from doing it? Or would you say, watch your reasons for wanting to do it, listen to those reasons, and then go, mm, actually, you might have a point? Yeah, look, he, if he's a valid point, if he's thought about it, if he's thought about the reasons why, about keeping up, you know, for potentially in T20 cricket or one-day cricket, stop those quick singles or whatever, and to get the, the, the non-striker to just think about what he's doing and when he's going, then, look, it's... He came up with X, Y, and Z. So, well, yeah, okay, that's fine. Are you going to warn him? Yeah. And and that then comes down because I would be uncomfortable if he didn't warn him. Hmm. I think if 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 he warns and and you know it, it's someone still stealing, you know, ground. Good, but it plays a massive part. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. it plays a big part. If you can. Still half a yard a yard, you see it so often with these run outs. How, how close are they to being out? Mm. So, yeah, know, the technology as well these days is like a couple of millimeters can be the difference in a game, can't it? So, it's they have the, yeah, so those we, couple of know, yards make a massive difference. Yeah. Do we try and use that technology to, to have foot faults like they would in tennis? I never yeah. thought of the, the plus 10, it's quite a good. Way of doing it. In Not no balls, that is for sure. Would you do yeah. it in the longer form as well? All forms, every oh. single form of game. What you'd find is like bowlers these days, they try and get as close to the line as possible, don't they? They want yeah. a professional sport, you want every advantage and push everything right to the line without going over the line. Ten runs, metaphorically speaking. Up. Yeah, if when you've got 10 runs, then it'll be a very literal thing. They'll come way back from the line to make sure that it's not even close, I guess. Um, I don't know one batsman who's ever played the game where if you take a size 12, that's a foot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Essentially. So from the heel being on the on the line to the toe being on the line is a foot, which is, let's say, probably a mile an hour over the course of a... I don't know any batsman who's been deceived by one miles per hour. Yeah. in their career. Whether that bowler bowls at 95 or 96 miles an hour, it, one mile an hour doesn't make any difference. If it's 78 to 79 miles an hour, it doesn't make any difference. So why why bowlers strain for their heel to touch the line as opposed to the toe touching the line is quite frankly, and always has been, beyond me. I mean, I I was brought up with a fantastic pro of the Morgan and Steve Watkin and Steve Barwick. And the pair of them, their toe didn't even touch the front line. Hmm. Yeah, they did. They, they never ever. And what? And speaking to umpires, you know, because they could just tell where the back foot contact was. There, they had more time to focus on what was happening at the other end, and therefore probably got more wickets, more lbws, because they had more time to focus on what was going on. Uh, at the other end, you know, and uh, so look, why, why wouldn't you? Why, why one foot? It does not in my my head, you know, being a batsman, and it does not make any difference whatsoever. No, 
I remember yeah, what, what he said that. He said there's no excuse for bowling no balls. He just didn't see an excuse for it. Yeah. Like, yeah well, right. you're absolute nightmare. I'll lose your own October. Yeah. And yeah, try and do something. But Yeah, I think it's like a <clears throat> excuse me, it's like a never ending um never ending topic. Yeah, we could talk about this all evening. But um I would like to, to move on to you, Matt. Um but I'm gonna Break my own mould, if you like. Uh, I normally like to start at the start of your career and kind of work our way through. But um, the first question I want to ask you regarding your career is, um, how did it feel to get an MBE? Ah, oh, amazing, to be honest. It was, uh, yeah, the, the, re- the recognition. I mean, it was, you know, potentially for, you know, in a way I wish I hadn't got it because I got it for charity work and, 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 and cricket and yeah, I'd, I'd already supported the Lord's Taverners and, and done my bit charity-wise, but obviously it was recognition of what we're done for in Tom's name. And um, of course, so yeah, look, it's it was a, a bittersweet, but recognition of you know that alongside the playing uh, career, which I'm, I'm very obviously proud of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so. Where do we start? There's so much. Uh, I guess I, the first thing I'd like to I like to ask our guests is, um, what's your earliest cricketed memory? What's that kind of one game you played in or you watched or something that just made you kind of fall in love with cricket? Earliest cricket in memory was was playing with my brother when you know we'd go down and my old man would be playing and um, we'd just be playing on on the boundary outside of it or playing in the back garden and. You know, um, he was a left-arm seam bowler and a, uh, and a slogger. Uh, and I was just a slogger uh, <laughs> who kept a wicket every now and then. So, yeah, look, that, that was probably it. And I remember then we used to obviously have the shared kit bags and stuff like this and never had a bat. And um, I played uh, over at Bangor Normal College, the, the, the ground there. I got 60-odd. Uh, this day, and my dad said, "Look, uh, whenever you get a hundred, I'll I'll buy you a bat. I'll buy you your first bat." And the very next day, um, they got one hundred and forty in a twenty-over game. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you um, remember the bat? Up, at, it was up at a school, David Chew's school, on an artificial against. I think it was against Changevni. Chang- no, it wouldn't have been Changevni school. It was. But it was against a, 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 a school. They weren't very good. And it was a belter of a wicket, as you can imagine, you know, an artificial. And it was like batting on any indoor surface against quite average bowling. Um, so, yeah, I got 100 the next day. So he, he, I got my uh, Gradical scoop. Nice. I, uh, I learned very quickly as a father, as soon as my boys started playing sport, is um, when you promise something in return for something, whether it's a hat-trick or a goal or, or you know, whatever it may be, runs, um, they suddenly up their game very yeah. quickly. Uh, Incentive, isn't it? Yes. Um, so where did your kind of break into professional cricket come from? Where did Was it a shock? Was it a gradual? How did that come about it, for Matthew it, Miller? It's he, he, he story, man. It wasn't a, a, a one-off. So I... I moved over to Bangor Cricket Club because they were getting a, a professional in called Bill Clutterbuck to do the groundsman and coach and player. 
So at 14, I, when I left Menai Bridge, we were playing a two or three divisions lower at, at that stage. The things gone on and done very well in the North Wales Premier League and won it a couple of times. But Bangor was the, the club to be close, close to me. So I joined. And at the end of my first season there, second season, there was a... Um, end of my second season at Bangor, there was um, a chairman's match. I'd never played in a chairman's match before, but it was basically an all-day affair where you played <laughs> two hours, break for lunch, a couple of hours, all declarations. And I got to lunch, I was 20 or 30 not out, and someone put a beer in front of me and have a beer like, you know? <laughs> so, first ever all-day game, first ever beer during a cricket match, and I smacked the leg spinner called John Bell all over and John Bell had uh, good connections at, at um, Mark Wheel Cricket Club. And across North Wales, he used to run this cricket festival and new various coaches. And at the time, there wasn't strong links between North Wales and Glamorgan. So, but he did know Colin Page very well. He was the Kent second level coach. So I ended up going down to Kent for a trial. Doing quite well in that Easter trial and went back um, for my GCSE. Went back that summer and played the full summer there, and then went back for two, another two years. But it never, I never got offered a contract, never. And in that last year I was there, or last half of a season I was there, I was batting at six and seven and, and batting as if I've got no chance here. And in the meantime, Alan Jones had been in contact from the moment. So went over to the Morgan and it's you know funny how things happen, but played against Hampshire and they had a, a quick bowler called Steve Malone, who went on to come and play for Glamorgan uh, and become an umpire. And and he got me out first innings for North, second innings I snicked off. Going to be a pair, you know, gone North. Look look behind him, first slip, first slip had left it, second slip, he left it first slip, and it went for four. And I went on and got 100. And I guess that just shows the margins, really. Yeah. The small margins. Fine, fine margins. Because all of a sudden, then you get belief that you can, you know, you can do it. I mean, I'd scored, I'd scored centuries for, for Kenting, in, um, but never in a second level competition, just in club and ground matches and, and club matches down there and stuff, you know. So it's my first second eleven hundred. Um, and then the next next year, I, I, I was the most consistent player in the. Uh, and sorry, I got offered a contract then uh, at the end of that year. So how how old would you have been then? So I was eighteen. So I've been down at Kent for uh, when I was sixteen, and seventeen, and and half the season when I was eighteen. And I played half season then at Glammy, and they offered me a contract. And 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 very sadly then my my father passed away in the October. Um, he knew I'd got a contract, which was which was great, but he never saw me play as a and now a professional player. So I just vowed to play the next season for him and it went went well. I was uh, second eleven kind of player of the year and got called up for my debut and um, and then it kind of yeah, it went pretty well. So Yeah, so um you made your England debut in 88 was it okay. yeah, 88 against the uh, the West Indies um, was that kind of expected uh, did you kind of know beforehand or was it a bit of a shock was there talk of it 
There was media talk of it, but there, there had been, you know, for a little while, and you know, there was always media talk. I, look, it was a series. A lot went on that series, if if you remember. Um, Mike Gatting, uh, captaincy, Cowdery in for a game, and then Gooch leading the side, so the Freedom captains, I think 29 players played in that series, all, all told. And yeah, there was a, the, we got an invitation to play for England. An invitation. An invitation, <laughs> an invitation came through the door, uh, invited to play for England. Thank God, so yes. Oh, uh, so yeah. you meet then on the Wednesday for a Thursday start, have a dinner Wednesday evening when the chairman of selectors tells you how good you all are and you know go out there and play the three lines tomorrow and have a have a wine have a have a beer uh before you go to bed kind of thing uh, so quite quite surreal but i think what you know people have asked me this throughout my career what what why didn't it happen for me i was look i was hugely nervous going out and, and playing um for england or, on debut but also every single time i played like I was nervous when I, Glamorgan, every game I played, I batted, I was, I was nervous apart from in my last season, but we'll come, maybe come to that later. But every game I played, I was nervous. There has to be nerves when you go in, in the bat. But it was, I think, what compounded my, my failings with England was I never felt valued in that environment. So I always had trying to prove myself in that environment to other players. Whereas at Glamorgan, you know, I, when I made my debut, Phil North made his debut in. Smith was also in the team. Steve Barber had played a lot of second eleven cricket, so I was familiar with him. I was familiar with Jeff Holmes. I was familiar with a lot of the players Hugh Morris played, the skipper on Tong. So I was familiar with a lot of those. I knew that those players actually thought I could play, which was nice. And obviously I got to a situation where we lost four quick wickets and it was kind of pressure off and just go out and play. Whereas... And then after that one knock, they knew I could play, and that was it. I was settled, and you know, work went on, and felt at home straight away in that environment. Whereas with England, that never happened because I never got that good start to my career. So yeah. I was always then trying to prove that I could play, and trying to prove to the teammates I could play, rather than just play the game of cricket. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I am. Um, sorry to interrupt you, Matt. I was just going to say. I um, I spoke to Mark Ramprakash recently. For I interviewed him for um, for a segment on the show, and one of the things which came up with him was um, that feeling of kind of nerves and feeling the pressure. Because I felt like you know yourself, Mark Ramprakash, plays like this hugely successful at county level, scored you know ridiculous amount of runs on a consistent basis for years and years and years, but never quite happened when brought into the England team. And I always felt like a big contributor to this, and obviously you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is that it felt like if you didn't score runs, you were out. There was never, um, like at the, for instance, using the current team as an example, they'll bring a young player in or they'll bring a player in and that player will generally stay for a series or two. They, Regardless of how they do, they will try and give them a series or two to, you know, to settle and show what they can do. Whereas with yourself and with Mark Ramprakash and a few others, it did feel like it was kind of, right, this is your chance, don't blow it. And if you didn't get runs, you were out for the next test. That's got to be, you know, that's a tremendous amount of pressure for anybody. Would you think that my opinion of that from the outside is fair 
Or do you Look, Rams just... played fifty odd test matches. You know, yeah. you know, he had a good crack at it. I know he, he got he got dropped a, a, a few times, you know, from various teams, obviously the one day teams as well. But you know, you can't compare me with Mark Ramakash. Ramps was an unbelievable player. You know, he, he got hundred and what hundred and eighteen centuries. You know, yeah. phenomenal, phenomenal player, Ram. Um, I was basically half as good as him. Fifty odd centuries. So look, he was a he was a terrific, terrific player, Rams. Now, um, where we do, I think, agree though that that the atmosphere that you go into play. So yes, you you want to succeed. Every time you go out to bat, you go you want to succeed. But uh, and succeeding in three day cricket or four day cricket is you know you you want to try and score a century. But you know the best in the world fail four times. So you know. Bradman, one mm. in three knocks, he scored a century, which meant he failed, failed twice before getting that third, if that makes sense. So, yeah. you know, and you know what, Steve Smith's one in five, he's one of the best in the world now at Test Cricket. Fails four times before it succeeds one. You know, if you average that out, you know, as a batsman, I think average a century every 10th innings. So I'd fail nine times for, mm. for that and success. So, you know, there are kind of margins kind of along those lines if you want to look at. But it, it wasn't about not the runs. It was about trying to please those in the environment. And I think that's, Rams tried to do that as well. And so you actually, it takes you away from what your your main aim is to do. Because you, you put the extra pressure to show them you belong, to show that you're good enough to, and Whereas if you have that belief and backing in yourself from others, that for me was a big, big part of it. Big, big part of it. Um, and as I say, I had that at Glamorgan. I had that at Club Creek with Banger. I had that when I played at St. Fagans. You know, but it's something that I miss with England. Um, mm. But look, playing for England in, through the 80s and 90s was quite often a one-in-one-out, one-in-one-out. You know, I think it changed when David Graveney and Duncan Fletcher took over the helm back 99-2000 series and, and watching Chris Adams play the five-test match series in South Africa that, that winter. And you, you all of a sudden you think things have changed. Yeah, They're actually going to give a guy an opportunity. And, you know, and anyone who plays five-test matches back-to-back, -back, and it's a very tough thing to do, don't get me wrong. But, well, you just, you'll start to feel at home, you'll start to feel part of it, you'll start to feel back in it, you know, and they give you an opportunity to show what you can do. And I think since then, I know there will always be the odd player who uh, isn't treated like that, but more often than not, the, the guys get a good run these days. Yeah, I think, I guess, I, you, if you feel part of the group, it's easier to just focus on what you got you to the got you picked for the squad whereas if you're trying to like you say you're almost trying to make or feel accepted by the rest of the whether it's the team or the staff or whoever is involved well, you're not concentrating on what got you to the dance yeah. if you like um later in 1998 uh you went on a, a a controversial tour to south africa the rebel tour um tell us a bit about that and and kind of how it came about why you went the reaction from some yeah. of the other people and the media? So it was, I say the start, it was 89, 89, 90 okay. that winter. So um, obviously I made my debut in 88 
um, got overlooked for that touring party for the winter to India, which got cancelled anyway. Uh, met up uh, with a selector um, at Leicester, first game of the season. Um, look, Matt, new score runs, you, good chance you'll be playing. Uh, the shared Texaco series, which is a one-day series at that stage, will be taking place, and you know you're you're in our thoughts. So I got good sixty odd that day, and it was a sixty odd, but it was a you know I, I was very pleased with it, and got a couple of hundreds in the Benson and Hedges competition, which was our you know uh, white ball um, or red ball it was in those days, but a fifty over competition and um and 191 not out uh, against Gloucester in a um in the championship so look i was in unbelievable form great form texaco squad gets announced i'm not in it but not only am i not in it i haven't had a call to say how far away i was or i missed out on selection to x so keep scoring runs then you'll be you'll be there there was no communication whatsoever so I then got a, a call from David Graveney saying that Ali Bachel would like to, uh, to meet you. So he came to our house in, uh, in Danes Court. Um, my missus made some food. We had young Tommy, young family, and he sat down and talked about the tour and what, what the hopes were for the tour from a South African perspective. And, uh, the money that was on offer for us, making ourselves available, told that he, you know, Mike Gatting had already signed up as captain, John Embry was going, Chris Broad, and they wanted myself and Alan Wells um, as younger players to, uh, uh, to to come on the tour as well. And it all sounded great, and I said, look, can I have some time to think about this? He said, sure, not, not a problem. So Sue and I sat down and said, look, you know, things aren't obviously happening with with England as we thought. Of. No contact and stuff like this. This gives an opportunity to effectively pay off the mortgage on our house, to not worry about uh, or worry too much about the, the future as a, as a professional sportsman. As we know, it can be an injury, it can be a dramatic loss of form, and you're out of a job. So it ended up from from that position being a fairly simple decision to make in in hindsight my lack of knowledge on uh what was going on in south africa and what was happening out in south africa at that time um was was pretty poor and of course these days you can just look up on google and yeah uh, and see what's going on and check that information but it was a lot you know more difficult to do that in those days without having to go to a library and look at paper papers from back in the day so uh look um it's not a decision i regret it's a decision that i uh was right for me at that particular time um and i you know even had a you know viv had been offered to go on on various tours with richard and he said to me look i i went and played world series cricket i got a ban from playing you've gone to south africa you've got a ban from playing we're actually in the same boat we both went for professional reasons. Yeah. Um, and that kind of, because I was very nervous about, you know, meeting the, the, the great legend that is Viv Richards with, on the back of just coming back from South Africa on that, on that tour. Um, of course. But he was, he was unbelievable. He was, 
he was absolutely fine about it. We've got a great relationship going, and you know, as a batting pair, but also as as friends as well. And you know, he certainly didn't ever seem to appear to hold it uh, mm. against me or uh, the effect. But look, it was an a really interesting experience going out there and uh, and seeing what was going on. And of course, it was supposed to be over two winters the, the tours, um, but the second year got cancelled. Uh, because of the bombs and because of the disruption, but also uh, what I believe, uh, and this is not from error, this is just my belief, is that had a tip off that if they cancelled that that tour, uh, that would look favourably upon them from a, an ICC perspective. That's so right. whether there's any, that's just my personal opinion. And hmm. obviously, within within eighteen months, uh, they were. Admitted back into Test match cricket. Yes. Mm. Um, so obviously you had a ban. Uh, was it a three-year Test ban? That you no, had five-year ban. Five-year ban. We all got we all got a five-year ban, which got basically cancelled as soon as South Africa got their readmittance. Right. Okay. Mm. Got you. So as soon as South Africa, you know, played, I think it was India. There was their first mm. matches were against. Yeah, I think it, it was. Yeah. In, uh, in yes. Then we were all allowed to play in GAT, uh, went, played played again for England, John Embry, myself. Uh, so a good number of us went on, you know, and, and played for England again. So when you went on that tour, when you made that decision, were you well aware that you were going to get some sort of ban? Oh, we knew um, you were going to get a ban. Yeah, yeah, um, was, yeah, we knew we were going to get a you know, substantial ban, yeah. What was the kind of reaction from your peers generally for your decision to go? Was there any kind of people who were a bit frosty towards well, you? or no, Not from the players' perspective, no. Um, one of the lads who went, I'm just trying to work out which one it was. It may have been Embry. I think it was John Embry. He said that for the money that we're earning, it would... The five-year ban and it doesn't come into play because had they played for England every single Test match, every single tour, every single series, they still wouldn't have come close to meeting that figure after five years. Wow, it's a no-brainer then. It yeah. So it was it was guaranteed. It was more than guaranteed England income for five years without playing. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So it was at, at the time. It was you know. These days, obviously different, different ball game playing international cricket. But but then it just showed that every every game you had to play every game for five years, you wouldn't make the money that we were getting for the tour. Yes, like nicer to say, it's a no-brainer then, isn't it? Um, fast forward to two thousand and four, when you were appointed assistant coach uh, with England. Uh, Mike Afton was quite critical of your appointment because of the Rebel tour. Like, how did that feel? Because to me, like looking completely from the outside, it kind of feels like 1988 to 2004 and he's still holding on to that a bit. It seems a bit strange to me. Was there anything kind of, was there any, uh, I don't know, Was did you not get on with Mike Afton before that or something? And there was that was the reason why he did. It doesn't make any sense to me. There was, look, there was quite a lot of, uh, there was quite a lot about it, wasn't there? Because, um, Obviously, Gat was a big job within the ECB. He was captain of the tour. David Graveney, they 
big job within the ECB and, and, and still does some work on the academy side of things, uh, I, I believe, but he's been involved in the ECB basically since he, he retired from playing. John Embry had still played and stuff like this. And, uh, you know, there were other, other people who were in that mechanism, uh, but he decided to choose me. And look, others, others knows how what I thought about him after the 94 tour. You know, I think uh, of the Caribbean, which was... You know, he he became captain, but the way he kind of didn't look after his what I believe that very well that the, the management within the team wasn't wasn't in it was a, it was a I don't know it was an environment that didn't necessarily look at individuals. It was you, if you don't perform, then you're going to be out. So I got my best test score in that first test of that first test match of that series. My my highest test score. Uh, I didn't play again all talk. And I knew something was wrong when we played a, 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 before the next test match. It was an inter, like a, a game against um, a Guyana uh, 11. I got 40-odd, 50-odd. Ramps got 100. And then the net before the, the, the day before, um, basically I wasn't on the list to net. And Fletch said to me, oh, Matt, you just go in at the end. Bring all the balls back when you're finished. Oh, and everyone bar Robin Smith left the net <laughs> and Judge stayed and... Guys, well played, Matty, and stuff like that. So I knew that was kind of the end of the the tour, then you know. And um, but it was just the way it was done. It just didn't yeah. very well with me. There was no open conversation. There was nothing from the captain at that stage. So I had a few words with him. Maybe it was a in response to that they logged in his mind. And uh, what was it? Ten years later or so, he, he decided, yeah, to, to bring something up. But it was, you know, to, I I loved that that winter as well. And. I, I, I said earlier that I've, I've been working for Thomas Carroll um, Insurance Brokers in South Wales in, in the winters prior to 0405. Uh, and, um, you know, it wasn't, look, I found it very hard working for them because it's not my natural kind of thing I did. And I had to learn about insurance, obviously, and trying to go out there and open doors to, to, to let the company in. And, and then I got an opportunity to coach then, obviously that 04, 05 winter uh, to Zimbabwe and South Africa. And I loved it. I, I loved it. And I got back to pre-season that year and I just felt flat batting for the first time in my career. I thought, hang on, there's something wrong here. Mm. I remember Darren Thomas pulled me and I, he said, well, well played, Matt. I said, I don't know, what was it? Yeah. And the first game of the season, I didn't have any nerves for the first time in my career. Whoa. Was that it for you then? Was that sort um, of a defining well, moment? Look, it, it, it's funny now. I played that game and then we went up to... Um, played against Warwickshire in the four day and then we went up to, to play a Sunday league game in Manchester. And it was like all this mizzle was around and we fielded. I was keeping wicket and stuff like this. And felt, felt real bad, like kind of must have picked something up and I, I felt bad on the Sunday and this mizzle didn't help things. Got back to Cardiff. Could hardly get out of bed on the Monday. Anyway, Tuesday comes along. I say, look, I'm struggling for practice here, guys. I've just called the doctor out. Doctor calls pneumonia. So I had six weeks <laughs> out with pneumonia. Hmm. Uh, I was in a right state. But it, look, it, was the be it wasn't the way I'd like to have finished my career as a Glamorgan player. But you know, it, it would have been, you know, nice to finish like what he did. But look, 
things don't always work out how, how you'd like them to finish. I had a wonderful start in my career, and my last innings for Glamour ended up being a naught. Um, second innings at Warwickshire during that on that Sunday. So uh, you can say, like, it started there and ended there, and then, you know, fair enough. But, you know, no thanks to the supporters, all that kind of stuff, you know, for their support over the years, and no kind of last game in front of the members, which was which was a little disappointing, but it was just the way it was. So I'd been released at that stage for six weeks to do the coaching with a one-day bit of uh, 05. But I was, during my illness, during the, the, the pneumonia, I got for the, the full-time full-time job. So you didn't get to say goodbye to the Glamorgan fans and the, and the, the club generally as a player. Uh, obviously, you've been back in various forms since. Um, in terms of coaching going forward would you like to get back involved in the England setup at some point do you think it's a good question funny enough I was talking with a uh, good friend Dean Conway the other day we're, we're having a hit around the golf course and uh, said you know what are your uh, aspirations now from a coaching perspective I said well look the biggest job that you know I've got is to try and get Glammy back to winning some silverware you know that's going to be a tough tough job in itself and it if I can manage to do that, that that that's reward enough for me at this stage of my career. I I would never say no to if an opportunity. If I got released by Glamorgan and an opportunity came to to coach an international side and and you get that, then that's a different you know different matter. That's a different because you've got to look for work. Um, but in an ideal situation, then you know we we'll try and get Glamorgan back to to winning some silverware and seeing players get close, if not play for England, because that's where we need to try and get. We need to try and get our players good enough that they're, you know, almost playing for England or just playing for England. You know, if we get lucky with a player and he, he comes through the system like an Ollie Pope who's got all the attributes and stuff and he goes on and plays and does it and nails it and, and could be there for a long time, then even better, you know. But uh, we have to aspire to start getting players in the Lions teams, which we haven't had for a good number of years. Uh, before representation in the in the senior squad, but that will all help to make you know and give us a good 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 strong squad going forward for a number of years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, just to finish us off, Matt. Then I, to be honest with you, look, I could we could sit here and speak to you for like three hours, and just uh, <laughs> it really is fascinating, and it's, there's so much which we could talk about. Um, but then I got a couple of kind of general questions that I'd like to ask, and then just. I would like you to talk us through the 100 which won Glamorgan the 1997 title to be the last thing we talk about um, but I ask every guest this uh, what's the worst or funniest sledge that you've either given or been on the end of um, <laughs> I, one that really got the bait and it wasn't directly to the batsman, but I, I, the one that I delivered to Ronnie Arani. So Ronnie had um, dropped Peter Sutch for a guy called Tim Phillips. And Georgie was keeping wicket. I was at Silly Point as Crofty was bowling and stuff like this. And I just said to Shorty, geez, Sutch would have been a handful on this, wouldn't he? 
and Ronnie just lost the plot. He shoved his bat in my face and just, you keep your mouth shut, man. Our selection's got nothing to do with you. And that was it. We just nibbled at him all day then on that, all day. They just blocked, blocked, blocked. Didn't take the game from us at all. And they were in a position where they could have done. And the best one that I, I had at me, which totally threw me, because Paul Nixon, you just used to talk rubbish all the time. Oh, new shoes there, Matt. You like those, boy. But, you know, they talk about, have you done the laces upright? You know, and, and, have, yeah, have you changed your grip? Have you, you tried to put your mind, like, get into your head that way. But it, it, yeah. that didn't worry me. And then Jack Russell would obviously come round with his sunnies on and try and stare you out and be a little rat, you know. And I used to like keeping the, um, my, my area clean. It was my area, so I'd kick. I used to bat in half and half, so with my back heel, I'd kick out the bigger bits of rubbish uh, just to keep my patch, and Jack would put them back in when he was back in. <laughs> but the best one I had was, uh, I think I got 20-odd in the first innings um, uh, at uh, uh, Test Match in uh, 93 at the Oval. I felt quite good against Warney and stuff like this. And it, it was it was all going well. I felt at home and uh, second in's walking out, and uh, just as I'm walking out, it, it was on the flight path to, to Heathrow. So Warney leaves the group of Aussies and comes and says, Maynard, see that plane there? If you don't get any runs this this innings, you won't be on the one to the Caribbean in the winter." <laughs> and I hadn't thought about. West Indies tour, about <laughs> next game for England, anything, and all of a sudden, I started thinking about it. It was it was brilliant, you know. It was it was a brilliant chirp for that reason that it got me thinking about something that I shouldn't be thinking about. That was yeah. the control, and I, I learned a, I learned a lot from that. So it was a, it was a good chirp for that reason, it, and it did unsettle me. I don't you know, I don't mind being called. Chip batter or a spawny get or anything like this when I when I'm playing or you know rubbish or whatever but but that just kind of threw it because it was just so out there if you like you know yeah um, <laughs> yeah that, that was a that was a goodie yeah. so um, the question which I know all our viewers want to know and uh, I know Kira wants to know I want to know and that is. Why didn't you play Nine Norman more when he was at Glamorgan? <laughs> you kind of get to a stage where you pick yourself or don't pick yourself, don't you? Yeah. Wow. It's, you know, you look, you kind of work, whatever you do, you look at who who's performing, don't you? It, it basically just comes down to to that who's performing. But I would, I guess, our we didn't overlap quite enough. Yeah, one two seasons, I think. So as I was getting in, and probably then that was my last season going out. Ah, okay. So what was being built with Dalrymple and you know, and Cosy was soon to kind of, kind of dissolve really. And as you said, you know, you had that the following season with, with uh, Metson oh. director cricket and uh, Alvira then as, as captain and quite a quite a change so you you know you're coming into the side you got closer you you know you you get closer to doing things and then it's really a case then of who manages that and that's the other thing you know you keep an eye on those young players coming through and look we've 
we've got a, a, a good little couple of young players now who could make it. So they're helping with their development and stuff like this. But another coach comes in and they may not see what they mm. you see and they're no longer there. You know? Yeah, yeah that's, uh, it can be difficult then, can't it, when you're developing younger talent if there's a change in coaches or management and they see something different it could be a whole new career path for well for young people. players you've got to reprove yourself yeah that, that, that's the thing and then say oh, all right i've got to earn and that kind of goes back to my in a way that that situation i had within england where i've got to prove i've got to prove i've got to prove well actually you don't because you've proved because you're a, a county player and i've proved because i'm a I'm now an international player. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. You don't, yeah. you don't think like that. You don't strip it back when you're in the middle of it. Yeah, it's only afterwards. Yeah, I think one uh, person, Chris Ashland. You, you know, he was well, my best mate, probably his best man at his wedding. I think he was one of the first bowlers on the team sheet for you, white ball cricket, when you were coach. He found it incredibly difficult to then re re sort of prove himself to Alviro. Uh, and Colin, uh, after the comments of "you're too small to bowl seam," and he, he he was like, "What? You know, I've gone from one coach who backed me entirely, playing all sort of white ball games, to then that attitude of, well, yeah, you're not going to play." I mean, I think I don't think people quite realise that if a if a coach comes in has that attitude to the other coach, it, it does play with your mind definitely. You know, it's yeah, very different. Look, that's something that... I, look I, I don't think any bowler in recent history. And when I say recent, since overarm bowling has been allowed in, in um, uh, in the game or underarm was banned in the game, bowls lower from a lower trajectory than Lathis Malinga. Yeah, no one, no one. No. It's impossible. He, he didn't have a bad career, did he? Yeah, exactly. So talk about height as a quick bowler or stuff like that. It's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Well, one of the hardest things we we ever had. You imagine Tevez bowling. Say one end. Sorry, Chris Ashling. Uh, Chris Ashling at one end, and if we had a six or eight bowler at the other, yeah, possibly it'd be an absolute nightmare to face as a batter. Yeah, because what one minute you know you you've got to go back to a, a ball that's just back at fractionally back of one end to going back to off the six for eighter, and you've almost you can almost drive that ball because it skids on from someone like Ashling. So it's a totally totally different game. Remember when when. Uh, we played knots one year and they had um, little James Taylor and he was batting with... Will uh, Jefferson, wasn't it? Will Jefferson. Yeah, I remember that. And at Swansea. Yeah. My God, I mean, that must How have been for that? bowlers to bowl to because one, yeah. one of them's cutting you and the next and the same ball, the next one's driving you, you know? <laughs> yeah, he yeah, was a big man, Will Jefferson. He was a big man. <laughs> um, right, OK. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time, but... Very, very, very quickly, I will say, uh, Nye came up with a tremendous bit of trivia for us uh, the other day with um, Kieran and uh, Phil Freitas, which was the 100 that you, where you secured the county ch championship for Glamorgan uh, was a very unique 100. Do you know why it was unique? Uh, I do, because you actually sent it through. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did, didn't I? Ah, oh, no. <laughs> You could have cheated then, but I like I like I like the honesty at least. That <laughs> well, that's me. You get, you get, that's what you get. Yeah. So the first single was after I got a hundred, and I inside edged it down the final leg. Yeah, that's it. Uh, 
Yeah. And it was, yeah, obviously one of those things that you don't plan on or you don't, you don't work for. Just one of those things that happens, yeah. Mm. Yes, spot on. Um, okay, Matt, thank you so much for joining us, mate. I really, really appreciate uh, your time yeah. and your honesty. It's uh, it's been fascinating, and uh, I you know would love to get you back on again at some point and uh, chat about Glamorgan and uh, and whatnot and the ongoing uh, stuff. And I'm sure there'll be more cricket on by then, and hopefully there'll be fans back in stadiums. Hopefully, um, anytime, anytime, si, and night, anytime, guys. Cheers, bud. I'll, uh, I'll pop all the social media links for for Matt, for Nai, for the show in the bottom. Subscribe to YouTube.com/slash/podcastnation, and uh, we will see you for the next episode of State of Play with an all-new guest talking all things cricket. Cheers. Podcast Network.